If you have a Bible, if it's still open, look at Psalm chapter 7, um, an interesting psalm that has, um, yeah, some great things for us to think about this morning. And we have said from the beginning that we are committed to teaching the Word of God, right? From beginning to end, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16 is the truth that all Scripture is inspired and all of it is, you know, good for us and it's going to correct us and teach us and train us. And so even when we come to a psalm like Psalm 7 that's got some things about like the anger of the Lord and it's got the judgment of God, we're like, hmm, should we just like skip this one? You know, this is a this is what our fifth lament psalm in a row now, but we're just committed to kind of trucking through and, and really asking God, um, Lord, what do you want to want us to see this morning in a text like this? What do you want to teach us? What is actually good for us to hear as your people? And so Psalm 7 is this uh, psalm of uh, lament and struggle. Um, Spurgeon called it the song of the slandered saint. Okay, so David, again, is this saint who is um, in struggle, in turmoil, and he has adversaries and enemies against him. And so let's just go right into it, okay, right into verses 1 and 2 again, which kind of set the stage for what David is experiencing and um, kind of the background to all the rest that he's going to cover in the psalm. So Psalm 1 and 2, reading it again, says this, O Lord my God. In you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So you really get the sense again that David is experiencing um, injustice or pain or wrongs against him. And we live in a world that is full of injustices and wrongs. You know, like um, all of us are aware in the news, especially in Canada, just the, you know, the ripple effect of the residential schools and how that is just like massive story in our society right now. Huge injustices done, you know, centuries ago. But then like at, at any given time, during any given day, you can, you can read about and hear about injustices all over the world. I was even thinking of and maybe this doesn't seem like an injustice, but in some ways it is. I was thinking of that video of that uh, condominium in Florida that just came down. And they had some home video of that, that moment where that actually happened. And you can see some apartment lights on. And I just thought of like, here are these people just living in this apartment. And boom, it comes to the ground in a moment. And you're just like, wow, the just the pain and the difficulty of wrongs in the world that people um, experience and go through. And then think about all the thousands of stories, maybe hundreds of thousands of, maybe millions of stories that just go untold, right, that nobody even knows about, that we're unaware of, of children who are taken, of people who are abused, of, of oppression or power that is, is done against people, that we have no idea that they happen. And then we think of David here and some of the struggles that he had in his life. And we think of, you know, all these psalms that we've looked at where David is pointing back to events in his life where it's been struggle and pain and challenge over and over again. Maybe we even think about our, our own lives. And, and I, I don't even know all the different wrongs that I've done in 
your personal lives. Maybe you can't point to something like hugely like massive that would make the news, but maybe you could. Maybe it's a story that people would be really surprised by. But probably all of us at some point in our lives have had something that has been done to us. Maybe words that have been said, maybe small wrongs that have been committed against us, um, some sort of circumstance that was really difficult that we can point to and say, man, that was wrong that that happened. And that was painful. And it, it leaves a mark, doesn't it? it? It leaves a mark on our lives that um, sometimes can come out later as like anger or resentment or bitterness or just like an experience that we want to maybe not remember. And so whether it's these huge things that happen or these little things that leave these painful marks, this psalm here again is a psalm of deep pain for David. And it's not really known, again, what the background is. Like these first two verses don't really give us a, a clear indicator of what the background is. Your Bible may have a, a little title on top. Um, in mine it says, in you do I take refuge. And then it has a little, in italics it says, you know, Shigeon, which nobody even really knows what that is. Okay, Some people think it's a type of rhythm. Some people think it's an instrument. People are kind of confused by what that is. Uh, it's of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Okay, and people are like, those words, first of all, aren't inspired words. Those are put in like kind of their tradition. They're, they're the ideas of people thousands of years ago that they thought maybe this psalm is about that. But even that hasn't given like scholars like a lot of insight, okay? Because they're like, who is Cush? Where is this guy from? Cush is generally in scriptures, this land that is kind of modern day Sudan. That's, but they're saying like, okay, hey, what is going on here? And, and I'll give you like the best estimations, okay? The best estimations is first that maybe this is referring to Saul. Kind of Saul's, um, you know, attacks against David because Saul's father was named Kish. And so maybe they're thinking, maybe it was Kish that kind of morphed into Cush over time. And so maybe this is pointing to Saul. Okay, that's, there's a big maybe on that. I don't know how much percentage we'd give it, but big maybe. Or the, the second theory is that maybe this is actually referring to Shimei. Remember we referred to Shimei like, I don't know, like a month ago, who was this... Um, who's part of Saul's family, actually. So that you kind of got that family of the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul. And he was insulting David when Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom. So Absalom does this like coup attempt. And as David and all of his people are leaving Jerusalem, Shimei is there just cursing him out and mocking him and just kind of dragging his name in the mud. You can read that in, I think it's 2 Samuel 20 or 16 or something like that. So it's either one of those. But if it was, if it was either one of those, there's deep pain when David thinks back on those stories. Okay, he thinks of Saul and he thinks of like him getting the kingship. Nothing that he really was pursuing or getting. It was the prophet Nathan who came and said, okay, you are going to be the king you are going to be the one. And Saul was just against him and, you know, tried to kill him for years and years and years. Or it's Shimei, this guy who's like, I don't know, he's like a nobody, right? He's, he's just like a relative of Saul and now he's hurling insults at David. And David is feeling insulted. He's feeling pain and he's probably even feeling the effects of 
the physical oppression that comes with that, right? The people that are trying to get after him and pursue him. And what you can see, though, what is on the front of his mind in this psalm here is not just the, the physical struggle that is coming. Usually the, you know, the physical discouragement and the spiritual comes together. But what his emphasis here, look at verse 2 again, is it says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. David is thinking about his soul like at a soul level, what is going on in my heart? Whether it's from the circumstances that are coming around him or maybe how he's processing what God is doing through these difficulties, through these moments of pain. And so David says, man, what, what I'm really concerned about here in, in all of my problems is what is the state of my soul? The thing that's going to carry on beyond my life, right? We're given what? 50, 70, maybe, I just read an article yesterday that said, um, you know, in the near future, everybody's going to live like 130 years. First of all, I was like, I don't know if I want to live for 130 years, but we're all living like 130 years, but eventually the body gives out, right? No matter how many years we're given, the body gives out. And so the thing that remains, the things that we, that, that should really be on high priority for us regularly is, what's the state of our soul? David's concern is, what is the state of my soul in the midst of this hardship? Yes, I want to be physically safe. Yes, I want things to kind of work out around me. But what is the state of my soul? Is it fully committed to God? Is it fully committed to God in the midst of this pain and hardship? And David may have even been asking, man, shouldn't I be expecting some good as a result of this life? Like, I am king. I should have everything. I should be in my palace. And maybe that's the thing that even creeps into our own hearts subtly or maybe not so subtly at times. Like, God, I'm a Christian. I'm following your guidance. Generally, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to follow your guidance for my life. Shouldn't there be like good in my life? And there's, you know, some strands of Christianity that would say, man, you follow Jesus and good things are going to come. You know, there's going to be like wealth. There's going to be all kinds of great things that happen. And yet we know that in Scripture, or maybe you don't know, in Scripture we're actually promised the opposite. In Scripture we're actually promised that if you follow Jesus, if you follow God, probably what's going to happen is hardship is going to come your way. You're going to have to make some choices against the flow of society. And so, you can see even in John 16, I don't think I included it in there. It says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is, is trying to encourage them, but he says, listen, here's the reality. In the world you're going to have hardship. There are going to be difficult things that come. And so I don't know if you remember like a year it's almost a year ago, yeah, over a year ago, we started the book of Acts. And in Acts, you've got this amazing story of Jesus sending out the disciples and saying, okay, your mission is to make disciples and go throughout the world. And they start in Jerusalem. And like within a first few sermons, they're not like us, okay? Within a first few sermons, they got thousands of people that turn to Christ. And they've got like a mega church suddenly in Jerusalem. And everybody's like, whoa, this is amazing. And they're sharing stuff, and they're caring for each other. 
Peter gets arrested, but he's miraculously released. So everybody's like on this spiritual high, which makes sense, right? It's like, man, things are really going well. And then you get to chapter 7, where Stephen is taken and he's dragged aside. And he's proclaiming truth in this like amazing, you know, retelling of the narrative of God's people rejecting God along the way. And what do they do? They stone him. They kill him right on the spot there. And everybody's like, whoa, this is like for real, man. And it says after Stephen has died that everybody scatters. Now, it doesn't mean that they like leave the faith. It just means like they scatter and God ends up using that to build his kingdom. But everybody gets it really clear in their minds. Following Jesus is going to come at a cost. It's not just going to be smooth sailing all the way along. It actually comes with a cost. And that's what Jesus had been telling them when he was on earth already, that man, with, you know, with following him comes difficulty and challenge. And sometimes that is from external forces, so from the world around us. But then there's other times where it's also a result of just us and our own sin and the things that we do wrong. Look again at what David says here in verses 3 and 4. He actually owns up to it, okay? He does the thing that is the most difficult to do. He admits if he is the one at fault, if some of the stuff is coming down on him, he's willing to own it. So verse 3 says this, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So David says, man, if I've done something wrong, if, if these things, if this pain, these people that are coming after me are a result of sin in my life, then just like let it happen. Do what you need to do, God. And that, I think, can be maybe the hardest place for us to be in, to actually admit that, okay, I did something wrong. I think we talked about that last week in Missional Family, even um, just thinking about how difficult it can be to admit that we've actually been the cause behind some of the wrongs in our own lives. So the strife between, you know, a friend or the strife between you and a, a spouse or uh, a problem at work or a problem at school with a friend, whatever it is, oftentimes, if we're honest and truth tellers, and we own some of that, some of that's actually on us. We can point the finger and say, the world is against me, you know, external forces. But man, there's a lot of times where it's actually us involved in it. And to take the position that David has here and to just own it is actually one of the first steps to bringing resolution to problems in our lives. It, it may not solve the problem, but for us to be able to own what part is ours and let God kind of handle anything else that can't be resolved by what we've done or by what the choices that other people made is a significant step. And it's a step that David is willing to take. In the end, he's actually confident in his state. Okay, so if you read, when we read the rest, you'll see little lines where David's like, you know what? I honestly believe that these problems are not because of me. And so he's going to actually lean on God to, to do something, for God to act. And so David then, Point two, here, point two here is that David has confidence. So David has some struggles and pain, 
And now David has confidence, and I put in my notes here that he has confidence in God the warrior. Do you think about God as a warrior? Most of us probably don't, because what comes into our mind is Jesus, right? We, if you're thinking of God physically present, probably our minds go to Jesus and what, you know, what his life was like, and he was gentle, and he was meek, and, you know, we know that the Word of God says that God is love. That's how he's described. But when we read these next verses here, you get a glimpse of God the warrior. And so David actually puts his confidence in God to do something, okay? And there's three things that we're going to look at here where David puts his confidence in God. And the first one is actually through God's judgments, okay? Look at verses 8 and 9. Actually, just quickly look at the first line of verse 6. David says, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Okay, so David says, all right, God, now is your time. If, if these problems are going to get solved, my confidence in, is solely in you. So verse 8 says this, the Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. So David says, God, I need you in your anger to rise up and be the judge that you are. Now, we might not like that language that much, that God gets angry, but we should be thankful that God actually does get angry. He gets, he gets angry about the right things, okay? We maybe get angry about the wrong things. Maybe sometimes we do get angry about the right things, but our anger can be like um, influenced and dictated by sin. God's anger is not, okay? God's anger is perfect and right. So I was thinking the other day of, uh, I, I'm like, I like history and especially like, war history. So I was thinking about World War II and the, the end of that campaign. And you got like the allied forces coming from like France and you've got the Russian forces coming from Russia and they are like sandwiching the Germans, right? And they're slowly kind of driving in and in and in. And all along the way, the goal was obviously to, to end the reign of the Nazi army, but it was also to like find and capture Hitler. Okay, this like character, this charismatic leader who was this, the, kind of the genesis for all this thing. They were like, can we capture him and put him on trial and then kind of give him the justice that he needs? And so as they're coming in, and if you know the history, you discover that the Russians were like really close to where Hitler was. And by the time they got to him, Hitler had committed suicide already. And he was like half burnt in a little pit. Everybody was like, oh, he got away with it. No justice, right? He didn't have to pay for any of the wrongs that he did. They ended up having, you know, the war tribunal for all of his lieutenants and kind of any of the other leaders, but Hitler kind of missed it. He missed his judgment, and the world wasn't able to kind of make him pay for what he did. But when we look here at David's cry for justice, we see that David is not concerned about how he can kind of give people earthly justice because he's probably thinking at that time that he wouldn't be able to give adequate justice for the wrongs that have been done. David commits his, he commits the act of 
creating the right or bringing justice to God, the judge who can judge perfectly. But it's not just for the Hitlers of the world, okay? We love to, I love to point the finger at people who have done maybe what I would count as bigger wrongs than the wrongs that I've done. But what is it that David actually points to? Look at what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, what, what does God judge? He's the one who tests the minds and the hearts. So God's not just focused on the people who do like, you know, the people who start a war or the people who kill people. He's actually going to judge people right down to the heart, to the small things, to the deceit, to the lies, to the, you know, all the little things that you and I commit. God is not just concerned about the big stuff. He's actually going to judge everything from top to bottom, which for us as believers is, it's good to know that, but also it makes us like so thankful for the cross. That's why we take time to think about, you know, communion and confession every single week because we're like, wow, God, if you judge right down and you test the minds and the heart of me, ooh, I need Jesus, right? I need that cup and I need him to pay for my sin because I know that God is going to judge rightly and I stand wrong before him very often. And so David actually, that's, that's actually David's confidence is that God would be his judge even though he tests and he tests right down to the heart. And you can see, we, we won't read it now, but I had written down to read um, Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 gives, gives this amazing picture of the closing battle. And it actually pictures Jesus as a warrior. Okay, so if you want like an image of Jesus as warrior, read Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16. His clothes are like dripping with blood. Okay, he's got like a weapon. He's got a tattoo. He's like hardcore, okay? But this is Jesus, the warrior, who is gonna come and finish the battle, defeat evil and sin. And so the question is for us is, man, do we believe that that is our God? That no matter what happens in our lives, no matter the wrongs, whether we can make them right, we can kind of do that justice, we can take people to court, we can somehow be made, you know, that everybody knows that I was right in this situation. Whether we can do that or not, God ultimately will be the final judge of all things. And so David has confidence in that. But he has confidence in more than that. It's actually in the weapons of God as well. Verses 10 through 13. Look at this. Verse 10 says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Wow, God feels that every day. Verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, I don't know if David is thinking that these are real weapons or whether these are poetic words, metaphorical, whatever they are, but David is squarely pointing to God holding these weapons, okay? So David's not like, okay, God, could you provide for me a sword or maybe um, a shield? And then I can use those weapons and go do some damage and create, you know, and make justice. David, what he's doing actually is pointing to God saying, 
God, you are going to use these things. You're going to bring right somehow by bringing these weapons to bear. And for us as New Testament believers, we know that that language of, that military language still comes to the New Testament. But it's all in the spiritual realm, right? It is what God is doing around us in terms of the, the evil and the principalities. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So even in the first century when the Apostle Paul was writing these words, there were Christians and there was some internal desire to take up the sword and to like do some damage. Just like Peter did, right? Peter is like, let's grab a sword, let's start a revolution, let's make this a Christian nation and do something. And Paul says, those are not the weapons that we battle with. And that's not, a, that's not a, an issue that just happened 2,000 years ago. There's still people today, people would call themselves Christians, who would love to rise up in different ways and, and use their kind of physical might to bring justice to maybe places where they feel they've been wronged. And we're called as believers to firstly and primarily see the battle around us as a spiritual battle. And the, the ideas and, you know, the, the evil behind ideas, those are the places where we do battle. Now, it doesn't mean that we never um, use the, uh, what I'll call like the gift of the state, right? The, God's actually given us the state to help bring justice to the world. So if there's abuse happening in a church, it is right for the church not to just be like, oh, spiritual battle, let's just pray about this. No, this is, if abuse has happened, we go to the authorities, they bring the weight of the law against individuals. That is actually a gift from God. But as believers, our primary battle is actually with the ideas and the thoughts that go against what God is doing in this world around us. So in the friendships that we have, you know, if we hear the way people are talking maybe about like other ethnicities, there's, there's an injustice that's happening actually. And the core of the problem is actually thoughts and ideas that people have that are inaccurate to what the biblical vision for, you know, the Imago Dei for the value of all people. And so those are the places where we go to battle. To the ideas and the thoughts that actually end up bearing fruit that bring injustice to the world. And so, man, we should be like the best neighbors. We should be the best friends. We should be the best uh, bosses who speak the truth into people's lives and stand up for that. So David is asking for God to bring some sort of justice and through God's weapons, and as New Testament believers, we see, man, those weapons, they're actually given to us to, to wield and to bear. They're called, like, peace and righteousness and the gospel and love. That's actually how we bring those weapons to bear. So, the last thing that David looks at for confidence, looks to for confidence, is through God's power to change things. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says this, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit 
digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. So David is saying, okay, God, somehow you're able to turn people's plans upside down. You know, if you've got an enemy who has some sort of a plan, and, and David here talks about digging a pit. You know, he's got some sort of idea. Maybe he's going to, like, trap an enemy in a pit. So he digs a pit, and somehow God is able to make it so that that person actually falls into their own pit. Okay, maybe it's a little comical even, what David is saying here. But basically, we have a line even in, in our day and age today that says, you know, someone needs to hit rock bottom. Right? If someone is going to, like, own problems in their life, if someone's going to really make the first step toward change, we often say, man, they need to hit rock bottom. I think that's what David is asking for here. God, could you somehow bring those people to hit rock bottom so that the plans that they're making are totally used against them and they like fall right down into a pit? It makes me think of the, the thief on the cross. If you think of that powerful story where Christ is hanging there He's in the middle, right? He's hanging on the cross, and there's two thieves on either side. And in Matthew's account, it says that, you know, the religious leaders are there. They're making fun, and they're ridiculing Jesus. And it actually says that both of the criminals on either side were also ridiculing Jesus. But then later, we read in Luke's gospel that one of the criminals looks over at Jesus, and he says, and Jesus when you get into paradise, will you take me there with you? Can you help me? What, what happened there? How much time elapsed? It can't be more than a few hours, at least, from ridiculing Jesus to what I think is hitting rock bottom and turning in repentance to Christ. Now, we might say, okay, that's obvious because he's like about to die. Okay, this is like a 12th hour confession, right? This is the end of the line for him. But whatever it takes, David is asking, whatever it takes, would you help my enemies hit rock bottom? Now, is David's motivation so that they'll repent and turn to God? I don't know. I mean, you kind of read these words and you're like, maybe he'd like them to stay and die in that pit. It's possible. But we know that God's intention, actually, when people hit rock bottom, is for them to turn in repentance to him so that they could find their full purpose and fulfillment in him. And so whether David's motivation is right or wrong, it's hard to tell. But we do know that God can, in a moment, change someone's heart. And in a moment, he can change our heart for whatever the situation is around that, us that's happening. So David's confidence is in God to work through these judgments and through these weapons and through, like, you know, the circumstances of people to draw them back to himself. And finally, we'll end with this. David um, is thankful to God that he is his refuge. And so verse 1, which we really skipped over quickly again, let me just read it. It says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And verse 17 says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. God is our refuge. And Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God and in whom I trust. That's the verse that Elizabeth Elliot used for the title of her book, which is called In the Shadow of the Almighty, which tells the story of her husband with four other missionaries who were killed by Indians in Ecuador. I don't know if you've ever read the story or maybe you've heard of it. But Elizabeth Elliot, having been married to Jim Elliot for only three years, holding her 10-month-old baby, finds out that her husband has been killed in trying to reach this group of Indians with the gospel. And all five of them are dead. And what she goes back to and what her confidence is in is not in justice and not in, you know, getting everything right. I'm sure there were nights where that's what she wanted. But if you read her testimony and you read some of her books, you see that she specifically chose this text, Psalm 91, 1 and 2, because she knew that God was her refuge. Even through the pain, even through the the dark nights, she was able to look to God with confidence as her refuge. And so David does the same. He looks to God as his refuge. And we as believers um, hold on to that hope as well. Hold on to the hope that God is able to, because of his amazing strength, because of his resurrection power, he's able to make things right. And it, it may not happen in our lifetime as much as we wish that all the wrongs could be made right. But one day, we know that God will make all things right. And we put our hope in that because of the resurrection. Because we know that he, Christ died and rose for us. Let me close with this. Tim Keller writes this in Hope in Times of Fear, his book on the resurrection. He says, Christians view even the hardest circumstances as part of a history guided by God at every turn toward not merely some kind of afterlife, but toward the resurrection of our bodies and souls into a new remade heavens and earth. And all this hope counters on one explosive event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the only hope that we have, is that Jesus actually accomplished all that he said that he would, and that he was God in the flesh and rose from the dead to prove that, and he will one day come to judge and to make all things right, all bad, all that's been done wrong, he will make good and right. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for Psalm 7 that... Just remind us of your perfect judgment, your grace and your goodness towards us. And and I pray, Lord, that each one of us um, would turn to you as the source of our hope and uh, that we would put our trust in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.